seated. Well, I'd like to speak to you today from Daniel chapter 1. In an occasional series I do at the beginning of the school year called uh, Daniel for Students. But as we see, it's uh, much more applicable than just to students. But I do have them particularly in mind today as we go to Daniel chapter 1 and uh, read about a new course of study which Daniel and his friends, perhaps uh, surprisingly, but rather willingly took on in the far-off land of Babylon, where they were carried captive. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. And therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants." So he consented with them in this matter. They tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in the flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them understanding, excuse me, knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before King Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, 
None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, we come again to this, your holy word, in order that we might likewise learn to be wise and bold in our own time of pilgrimage, being exiles and strangers on the earth. We pray that you would likewise encourage especially those students and their teachers, others who are seeking to make uh, a new way, uh, seeking to learn to live before you in the world, seeking to serve before the King of Kings. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. When I was a young Christian in the 1990s, a Romanian pastor from Romania, where else, came to my Sunday school class in order to tell us about what had recently happened in his country. He told us how a revolution had taken place and how it began with the communists coming to remove the pastor of a Romanian Reformed Church for his outspoken criticism of the brutal Ceausescu regime. When they arrived at the church, though, uh, to arrest him, they found that somebody had tipped off the congregation and there was a human blockade. They were not able to arrest him. There was a standoff. The townspeople had filled the church, which then became a nine-day standoff, and eventually filled the city square. When the communists called for reinforcements, more townspeople showed up, and they refused to leave. Now, it was late December. It was usually bitter cold at that time of year, but in those very critical days for Romania, as those Christian people slept outside in the city square and prayed, by God's blessing, the nights were warm, the temperature was good, They did not disperse. That act of defiance sparked then a series of protests in other cities so that in less than two weeks, it brought down the government. And this man who had come to our Sunday school gave glory to God for all that had happened to overflow the the bloody and oppressive reign of Ceausescu by the brave stand of one reformed pastor. Well, now, the man told our Sunday school, They were faced with a whole new problem. And that was the reason that he had come to our country and was visiting our large singles and career Sunday school class. Overnight, he said, they had a whole new government, new schools, new freedom. In fact, they wanted the Christians to take the lead in helping to rebuild that historically Christian country to what she had been before the communists came to power. And as soon as that happened, the Romanian Christians suddenly realized something that they had never seen before, he said. When they were being persecuted, when they were risking their lives, they thought that they were the strong and courageous Christians of the world. But when they were called out of hiding and asked to take the lead, living as Christians in the world, Well, they realized that was much harder. It was harder to live for the Lord than to die for him. 
And this Romanian man had come to America to recruit young people to come to his country and help. He said, we need everybody. We need Christian teachers, Christian business people, Christian government workers of all kinds, Christian laborers of every trade. They had been ready to die for God. But now they needed to learn to live for God. I didn't go to Romania. But I did want to rise to the challenge to live for God's glory in the world. Because those Romanians were right. There was a time, not very long ago, that Christians did build the great universities and did the great science and wrote the great literature and composed the best music and built the great structures of society that have endured to this day. They had a tremendous influence in many spheres of life and in the world as a whole as they lived for Christ, but, but things are different. And you might wonder, well, what can be done now? Psalm 11, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a good question. And the book of Daniel is written to answer that question. At a time when all seemed lost, God's people conquered, taken into exile, this book lifts our eyes and shows us that God had, had not forsaken his people. He never does. At a time when it was extremely difficult to live for Christ in a heathen world, this book is written to teach generations of God's people after them how to live in the world but not be of the world. And that will be our study today. Uh, although I've missed a few years recently, I uh, usually at the beginning of each school year would bring a message from the book of Daniel because I believe this book is so particularly helpful in our generation as we rise to face similar challenges. Some are here learning. Some of you are teaching. Others of us are simply trying to apply what we hopefully learned that we might live for Christ in the world and might need to learn some of those lessons again. Well, as the people of Christ, we all want to know how we might live to serve the King of Kings. And we come to this passage in order to get some direction. As we learn from verse 1, we are in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, mentioned in the passage here, had just come to the throne that year. In fact, he just won a very important battle against Egypt and then overcome Jerusalem on his way back north. He is now the ruler of the greatest empire that the world had ever seen, a vast territory about the size of the United States in geography, embracing many different nationalities and languages and religion, uh, a region that stretched from the border of Ethiopia to Turkey to Pakistan today. How was he to hold that huge empire together? We read that Nebuchadnezzar made an amazing offer to these young Hebrews, free college scholarships, a three-year degree course in Babylonian language and literature with a guaranteed job at the end of their studies. What an offer. 
Now, why was, why was Nebuchadnezzar doing all this? Well, Nebuchadnezzar had come up with a brilliant tactic that he would take the king's sons, the best of the nobles, the future rulers of Israel, and he would turn them into Babylonians. And Daniel and his friends were simply a small part of a great master plan by which Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hold together his empire. Now try to imagine it from the perspective of these young men, suddenly taken away, a strange country, strange language, strange customs, everything unfamiliar and threatening. They had no family to protect them, no mother and father to counsel them. And think of the spiritual change. They're no longer in the holy land of promise. They are no longer under the king of God's appointment. There is no temple. There are no sacrifices. There's no place to worship. There are very, very few other believers. Some of you think, sounds like freshman year. For 70 years, at least, in Daniel's case, the pressure of Babylonization was kept up day after day, become like us, become as we are. And how hard it must have been for them to resist that pressure while playing a very full part in society. How discouraging it must have been when, as we read, the articles of worship from God's temple were taken away and placed in the treasure house of a Babylonian god. In other words, God had been defeated by all appearances, or at least it appeared that God had somehow lost control of this world. What was it going to come to? His people in exile, his city overthrown, here they were in a strange land, far from the covenants, far from the promise, far from all that God had said to his people. It was all lost But then we read through the book of Daniel, and we realize these young men were not taken there. These young men were sent there. Daniel himself will rise to become the prime minister of a great, great empire. God's people will have a very important role to play in Babylon as God's holy people, strangers and pilgrims in the world. And that is the value of this book. That is why we have it. The title of my sermon from verse 19, They Served Before the King. That verse, of course, means Nebuchadnezzar. But I'm saying they served before another king. They served before a king who rules, even in Babylon, who rules over all. Our Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, whom this book introduces us to with brilliant clarity later on. But I would like to give you from this chapter three principles about serving before the true King in the Babylon of our day. First, involvement. Involvement. They were in the world. Daniel and his friends had been taken to Babylon. It's very clear that they soon became deeply involved in the social, administrative, political, and cultural life of that heathen empire and playing a significant role soon in Babylon. They were enrolled in a Babylonian school. They set themselves for a lifetime in the Babylonian civil service. 
They learned the language and literature of the Chaldeans, we read, and they had three years of training to begin it all, the purpose of which that they might serve before the king. Now, admittedly, they had no choice. They were carried into exile. But they certainly embraced this opportunity very enthusiastically. So that we read that when the king interviewed them, and among them all, there was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and therefore they served before the king. They graduated with high honors, summa cum laude. Uh, they didn't pursue their studies half-heartedly or resentfully, and this promising beginning was followed, as I say, by 70 years, in Daniel's case at least, of fruitful service in the land where they had a great impact for the Lord, and especially upon the rulers of that nation. This was their calling. Jeremiah had told the captives in Babylon, the word of the Lord, seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for it's in its peace you will have peace. And in many other words, God had said, I don't want you to stay aloof from the city where I'm, called, where I'm sending you. I am putting you there to be very involved. And Daniel and his friends played a full role and an effective role in the public life of that kingdom with all the tremendously difficult choices and decisions and pressures that we read about that were involved. Brothers and sisters, it's always been a temptation for believers to opt out of what they see as an evil world, separate themselves. We, of course, had the monastic movement in the Middle Ages where people thought that by removing themselves from society and gathering together in monasteries and secluded communities that they could shut out the world, forgetting that the world was in their hearts. No, don't get me wrong. Good came from that. The Benedict Option is being discussed again. But there is today, even now, a, a sort of evangelical monasticism where involvement in the world is viewed as suspect sometimes or second rate. We hear that secular work is very much second best. The appeal is made for young people often to give themselves to full-time Christian service to God. I know what they mean. But my friends, I hope we realize that there is no such thing as not serving the Lord for the believer. Paul writes to bond servants, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. He told those bond servants, you see that master? You don't serve him anymore. And don't think that you're not going to be rewarded for your work. There's a new master, a good and gracious one, who's going to make sure that you're compensated adequately for all that you do for his name's sake. We are all involved in full-time Christian service every moment of the day. Some callings are more strategic for the advance of the kingdom of God among the nations, of course. But we are all together involved in serving our God, whatever our calling in life may be. And I hope that you like that good word, calling. It's a bit old-fashioned now, but it expresses a good biblical concept. The Lord has called you to be in the world, 
where you are. To serve him there, involvement is a Christian duty. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And the salt does not accomplish much while it's still in the salt shaker. He rarely prayed negatively, but our Lord once made an important negative prayer. We read in the Gospel of John, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. He specifically says that. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, Father, I also have sent them into the world. We are all called to involvement, to live in this world, to the glory of our Savior. That's how they approached their studies. Yeah. That's why they acquitted themselves so well. They weren't serving the Babylonians. They weren't even serving themselves, looking at their grades and thinking, oh, I did a good job, I didn't do a good job, I hope next week is better. They had a much higher calling. This is written for our instruction, the principle of involvement. They were in the world, but they were not of the world. That brings to the second balancing principle from the passage, devotion. They were in the world, but they were not of the world. Now, we've spoken of the danger of separating ourselves from the world, but there's an even greater danger. And that danger is being absorbed by the world, being assimilated, becoming a Babylonian, becoming like the world. I mean, salt accomplishes little in the salt shaker, but it's even worse if it loses its savor because Jesus says then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So we read that Daniel and his friends resolve then and there to serve the Lord no matter what in a position of great weakness. with everything to lose, with no influence. Daniel, Daniel, verse 8, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies or the, with the wine which he drank. And you notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, you know, uh, I'm going to fit in for a few years. And God helping me, then I'll really count for God. Maybe when I pass my exams, when I get through my prelim, when I get my promotion, when I have some job security, then, then I'll stand for God. But I'm in too vulnerable of a position now. I'll fit in for a few years, then God helping me, I'll really be able to count for God. You know what happens when you take that path, right? Yeah, some of us know too well. Because the, by then the battle is lost. And if you are willing to compromise in the beginning, you'll find it harder and harder to be faithful in the big things later on. You know, one of my friends told me that the best advice 
that he got when he first got to campus was this. Someone told him, for the first two weeks, be the kind of Christian man that you want to be in the world. Establish your position, your devotion, your direction. Do not wait to serve the Lord. And the more godless a society, the brighter shines the light of Christian character. In the darkness of Babylon, Daniel was one of those who shall shine like the brightness in the firmament forever, as it says in chapter 12. But I'll give you a few references of how this man stood out. Nebuchadnezzar the king says this in Daniel chapter 2, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you. The king had watched this man. That was his unsolicited testimony. I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you. Many years later, chapter 5, the queen mother says to Belshazzar, then king, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And most strikingly of all, in chapter 6, we have recorded for us the earnest efforts of Daniel's enemies to find some flaw in him, something that he had not done faithfully in his work. We read that the governors, the satraps, sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. And these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. No error or fault found in him. What, what a testimony from his bitterest enemies. This is the man that God made the prime minister of the crown in that heathen kingdom. It started very small. It started the first day that the food was set before him. How were they going to live? What direction were they going to take? Were they going to serve the king of Babylon? Or were they going to serve the king of kings? You learn to be faithful in little. The Lord will make you faithful in much. Christians are to be spiritually separate, though we're not to be socially segregated. We're to be insulated from the world's philosophy, but not isolated from the world's people. Do you see the balance given in this first chapter? We read also for, of, of Jesus that he was, on the one hand, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and yet we read that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a man of profound compassion for the world. So our Messiah was perfect in all respects. Unlike the Pharisees, he went in and ate with tax collectors and sinners, the first to come into the kingdom of God, and he was their friend and savior. While always holy and undefiled, pure from sin, present with sinners. This is our calling. That's very difficult as it is with all the difficulties and dangers and hard decisions that you can imagine from reading the book of Daniel. Now, the fact is, um, 
God is bringing his good news to this world. And God could have just dumped out tracts from heaven on on the world to, to bring it to us. He could have written his message in the sky. He could have shouted the word down, people of the earth, let me tell you about redemption. He didn't do that. You know what he did? He came right down here to where we live. Flesh and blood. The Word was made flesh. The Word that was God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. He humbled Himself and took the form of a servant, and He shined forth as the light of this world. And He said, You are the light of the world. He said, And there's no hiding a city that is set on a hill, and a lamp doesn't do anyone any good if it's under a bushel. You put a lamp on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, he says. May they see your good works. May they glorify your Father in heaven. Involvement, devotion. As difficult as those things are to hold together, this is the calling of each one who follows Christ. Third and finally, we learn here dependence, and with this point, I will conclude today. Dependence. The Lord is the primary actor here in Daniel chapter 1. It is the Lord who, we read in verse 2, gave Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hands in the first place. It is God, verse 9, who brought Daniel into the favoring goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. In other words, far away from the promised land, when all seemed lost, lonely, isolated, God was still there. God is still affecting the thought processes and attitudes of these Babylonians. The Lord blessed and prospered His servants all the way through their lives. And again and again, we find that there is help unseen. Chapter 2, the greatest king on earth has a dream. And he has to wait humbly and quietly until the servant of God comes and explains it to him. All his science can't do it, his wise men, his culture, his education, the technology of the day... They can't do it. Only the servant of God can do it. Chapter 2, we read that the mightiest empire cannot understand a thing if God does not reveal it to him. And at the end of the chapter, the king falls on his face and says, truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets. God is at work in Babylon. Chapter 3. The whole of Babylon's destructive technology is aimed at killing three believers. And they cannot do it. The mightiest empire on earth cannot take away the lives of three of God's people. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He has his furnace heated seven times over. His own soldiers are killed by the blast as they throw them in. But God's people are not killed. And we read... Did I not cast three men into the furnace? True, O king. Look, he says, I see four men 
loosed in the furnace, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. He's there. The Lord Jesus is walking with them the whole time. And at the end of that chapter, he makes a decree that all people should worship and tremble before the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because, quote, there is no other God who can deliver like this. Chapter 4, the same message. Nebuchadnezzar exalts himself in pride and says, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for my royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And the God turns him into a beast. He loses his mind. He's humbled. He's made to eat grass. And I believe at the end he is converted as we read in chapter 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and whose ways are justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. Chapter 5, same message. Belteshazzar and his blasphemy and arrogance brings in the gold vessels from the temple of the Lord and drinks from them and praises the gods of wood and iron and stone. And his concubines praise these gods as they drink. And suddenly, in the midst of that arrogant uprising, we read, fingers appear on the wall. A mysterious message is written. And the king's countenance changes, and his thoughts are troubled. And the joints of his hips, we read, are loosened, and his knees knocked together. And the Lord says, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to others. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, is slain. Chapter 6, prayer to God is forbidden. Daniel is thrown to the lions. And Darius ends by saying, I make a decree that in, my, in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. And his kingdom is the one that shall not be destroyed. And his dominion one that shall endure to the end. Every single chapter, you have an emperor brought low. Could anything be more important for these exiles confronting the awesome powers, the, 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 the ferocious soldiers, the, 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 the wealth, the power of Babylon, the palace, you see the court, you see the armies, you see the emperor. And God is saying in this book, my people, don't be frightened. Don't fear. I have sent you to these lost, darkened people. I have sent you to be the ambassadors of the King of Kings to this nation. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is for generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth, verse 4, are reputed as nothing. Uh, chapter 4. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? The principle of dependence. I'm not saying be like Daniel. Ultimately, I'm saying know Daniel's God. Know the one who promised, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Know the one that when the fiery furnace came, he was there with his people, protecting, loving, helping, glorifying his name. You 
may be called to worse situations than these young men. But remember him who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. On the cross, Christ was forsaken so that you and I would never be. And especially in times of fiery trial, this is our confidence. The Lord Jesus comes to us in the midst of an evil society and says, my people, have courage, have faith. I am in control. I am in control. These evil forces that look so great, they cannot hurt you. They cannot damage you apart from my sovereign will. Trust me. Worship me. Serve me. Serve before the king. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, truly we see in this book the magnificence and power of the Lord our God demonstrated in such beautiful and remarkable ways. How we long to see again nations tremble. How we long to see the, the Daniels, the Mishaels, and Azariahs of the world to, to come forth and to serve you faithfully in difficult times. We confess our Father that we all too often have been discouraged and dejected. We have seen the, the holy articles of the Lord's house treated shamefully. We have heard the blasphemy of those who have reviled you and our hearts have sunk. Our Father, we pray that you would be the lifter of our head. We pray especially for these students who are preparing, perhaps, in young age to serve you, that they should have the courage even now to begin their service. We pray that you would bless those who have perhaps come to a new place, uh, come to a very different place than what they are used to, not knowing what it will mean or how they will be able to live for you possibly here. We pray that you would lead them in the way. We pray for those who teach. We pray for those who are seeking to raise another generation to do much better than we have. We pray that you would encourage those teachers, those who are even laboring now from a, uh, a mother's heart, from a, a teacher's passion, um, from an instructor's point of view, to show new possibilities and new ways of serving the Lord. And we pray that you would give them courage and wisdom to do their job as before you. We pray for all of us who are seeking to walk with the Lord Jesus in the dark night of a world that has, it seems, plunged into the old ways of Babylon. We pray that you would give us a, a new understanding of your sovereignty, of your power and purpose in our lives, of your calling for here, at this time, in this place, that we might be able to rise and serve you. We pray for any who, who do not know you, for those who have been incorporated so fully into Babylonian's life that they have not seen any other way. We pray that even as you had great compassion on the people of that far-off land, sending your, your own children to tell them of a great and gracious God, to lead them in a new and everlasting way. So, our Father, we pray that you would likewise take these 
young and old, who need to know such a God, who need to have such strength and courage and power in an evil day. We pray that you would lead them in the way everlasting. And we pray that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has once for all condemned this world, but brought hope to all who have sought it, we pray that it would again be the power and strength and boast of your people today as we take our stand under.